the honor of introducing Dr. Caroline Bucky. I guess I was asked to do this because I had the privilege of writing a story about her work a couple of years ago in the MIT Technology Review. As you may know, malaria kills about half a million people uh, around the world every year and infects another 200 million. Um, and uh, Caroline is a leader in figuring out how to use, among other things, the movements of ubiquitous phones to map where populations are coming and going and use that as a way, in her words, uh, you know, if we're going to eradicate malaria, this is how we will do it. Uh, it's really amazing stuff, and um, she's uh, she's a, is an assistant uh, associate director of the uh, was the, the full title at Harvard by now, at, at Harvard uh, uh, Medical School. So I will turn it over to Caroline to explain her amazing work, and thanks very much for coming. Okay, thank you. Um, thanks for having me. So. Uh, I have 20 slides. Uh, I was told 20 minutes and then discussion. So, uh, but I'm really happy to stop any time, just shout out, we'll, we can discuss along the way. Um, most of my work is on malaria, but I do infectious disease uh, epidemiology in general. We use mainly theoretical models and the focus of my work is, that, is on infectious diseases in low and middle income settings and particularly among children and vulnerable populations. So today, um, I'm going to talk about the use of mobile phone data um, in general. And this, isn't, this is not like mHealth, I design an app, I download the app and engage with people that way. This is about passively collected um, data that's, that's routinely stored by mobile phone operators. Um, and that raises all kinds of politics and privacy implications. And um, we'll talk about that at the end. I'm first going to talk through kind of the utility of this data for public health. Um, okay, so we've all seen figures like this of some kind. I think um, I'm going to talk particularly about epidemics and epidemic containment um, and the utility of these data during uh, disasters and response to disasters. So, you know, when we think about as epidemiologists, what do you need to have a really huge outbreak? So we're concerned about this for reasons of pandemics and epidemics. Um, you need a sufficient density of susceptible people. And as you know, uh, we've had this incredibly exponential rapid growth of populations in the last uh, couple of hundred years, um, and that continues to be a big problem, just over overpopulation and high density populations. And in particular, our cities are becoming in incre incredibly um, highly densely populated. So this figure, um, is from the UN, I think, and it just shows the percent of people living in urban areas in different parts of the world in 1950, 2007, and projected to 2030. So globally, 60% of people by 2030 will be in cities, certainly in um, places like Asia, we have the growth of these enormous mega cities, right? They're huge. Um, and in general, I think it was in 2010 that we surpassed more than half of the globe's population living in urban areas. So these are highly densely populated um, regions, and that's sort of perfect if you're a pathogen. It's like little bonfires that you can spread to. So the other requirement for an epidemic is sufficiently frequent introduction events from outside, right? So we now live in a highly globally connected world. Um, this map shows international travel routes um, in 1930, uh, and you can see it sort of looks like this, and this is now by 2010, and of course we're all familiar with these types of crazy airline trips that we all take all the time, right? So not only do we have massive population densities and very large um, urban centers, we also have huge 
global connectivity. So this is sort of the perfect storm for the spread of infectious disease on an unprecedented capacity compared to the past. So you think about the Black Death um, in the 14th century, part of the reason that was limited in spatially was because we just weren't that highly connected. People didn't move that far in their lifetimes. So this is, of course, very problematic. And we've seen over the last um, decade, really, this new emergence of pandemic-type infections, often starting with a zoonotic event from an animal reservoir, right? So we've had SARS, we've had MERS, we've had H1N1. This shows the spread of H1N1 out of Mexico, very rapid global dissemination of the virus. Um, uh, then Ebola in uh, 2014, and then most recently Zika. So Zika um, was circulating in uh, French Poly Polynesia, had an outbreak a while ago, and then um, international uh, migration moved it everywhere. And then, and of course, we've had this enormous outbreak since 2015 in Central and South America, and that continues now. So responding to containing these kinds of epidemic events are um, very important, and I think um, with this administration, we're going to pretend that this is all we do, is just containment of pandemics that affect America, because otherwise you can't get funding. But anyway, um, of course, there's, there are many other aspects of kind of spatial, uh, spatial um, considerations for the control of infectious diseases that aren't epidemics per se, or they're epidemics, but they've been going for so long, and they affect people, subpopulations that we're not so interested in helping out. Um, but of course, they're equally important for control. So we have vaccine preventable infections. And from a national control program perspective, the questions there that are spatial are to do with where the unvaccinated populations are, where do we need to send our health workers, where do we need to focus our efforts, um, and then what are the risks of importation that can spark outbreaks. There are plenty of seasonal epidemic infections like cholera, malaria, dengue, um, where we need to know when outbreaks are coming and prepare for them somehow, right? So sometimes this can be vector control if it's a dengue outbreak. Um, sometimes it can be about uh, doing a preemptive vaccination campaign, this kind of thing. And then, of course, for emerging epidemics, um, the spatial component is really critical. So there's an outbreak somewhere. How do we stop it from spreading, not just within a country, but internationally? So the spatial requirements for containment, where do we put the mobile health clinics? Where is it going to go next? Where do we need to enhance surveillance? Um, and these, and of course, trying to understand how quickly and in what direction the pathogen is going to spread. So these are really kind of critical pieces of any health care program. And one of the ways that uh, infectious disease modelers go about um, trying to understand these dynamics is using a kind of spatial approach to mathematical modeling of the disease outbreak. So you will have subpopulations defined by some variable spatial unit. Um, and what you want to know is what is the prevalence of the disease in subpopulation A, and what is the connectivity between subpopulation A, B, C and so on. And so we can model outbreaks within populations, and then we need to know about the mobility between regions in order to understand and contain uh, the spread of the disease. And so we can use network models where populations are defined by um, some spatial or demographic region that makes sense. Uh, we connect them with mobility flows, and then we're trying to understand, um, say, where this country, the low-risk country, how often are we getting infected visitors over our border? Uh, and how often are our residents going away somewhere that has a lot of the pathogen and bringing them back? Um, 
And generally speaking, we're trying to differentiate between importation events and local transmission. And then, you know, ultimately the reason we do that is so that we can contain or control the disease, either through surveillance, so we stop importation during an epidemic, that might be through travel restrictions, which happened during the Ebola outbreak, um, or quarantine. Um, and then we can also do transmission reduction. So for Zika, that would be spraying, vector control, these kinds of things. Okay, so, um, so what are the kind of spatial and temporal uh, types of data that we need to parameterize these models and actually understand migration in human populations? So this is a paper, a review paper that shows the spatial, spatial from kind of small scale to large scale spatial dimensions of mobility that impact disease. And here's the temporal um, from daily to long term um, aspects of this, right? So at the, at the fine scale on a daily level, we've got mixing in schools and at work and people moving around um, on a daily basis. Uh, then we have all the way up here, international long-term travel. So these are like um, migration events, refugee populations that move for the long term. And then we have all of this intermediate type of travel that's really the most important for things like national control programs and spatial containment of epidemics because they deal with inter-region connectivity. So within a country, between districts, um, or something like this. Um, and that drives some of these questions about resource allocation for containment and control. So we have, there are different ways you can get at this, these rates and flows of, of travel. So we have survey, travel surveys and little small scale GPS studies where you like stick GPS on people and follow them around or put an app on their phone and follow them around. Right, those are by necessity limited in scope, usually short term, and they're certainly not scalable for routine um, use. Travel surveys are difficult because people forget. Sometimes they don't answer honestly for various reasons, and they're just not particularly reliable. They're also limited in scope just because it's hard to administer surveys well. Census data is fantastic because you get all this demographic richness and detail and information, but it only asks about long term, like where did you live last year kind of questions. And obviously on the time scale of an outbreak, that's not going to be particularly helpful. And then there's airline and shipping uh, data that deals with kind of international travel among very particular demographic groups, right? Most people that I'm interested in aren't able to buy a plane ticket. Um, so we've got this gap, this big data gap that, you know, for regional travel. And, and until recently, um, infectious disease epi people for their modeling would use very, very simplistic um, theoretical models derived from physical laws, actually, to try and parameterize migration. Very hard to validate. It's not clear whether it works well, especially in low and middle income settings. Okay, so here comes mobile phones. Um, again, you've probably all seen figures like this too, right? Massive, massive penetration of mobile phones globally, um, even in low and middle income locations. And in fact, um, in many countries, we're reaching saturation on in terms of the number of Sim, used sims and handsets that there are in countries. And I'm sure you guys all know about that a lot better than I do. Suffice to say that, yes, it's true, in poor regions, not everybody has a phone. There's a lot of phone sharing, all of these kinds of things. But there are mobile phones basically everywhere now. And that's likely to only increase into the future. So mobile phone operators routinely store data from phones in order to, for reasons of churn analytics and this kind of thing. 
And what they store is uh, this thing called a call detail record. And what that does is it logs for every activity on your phone, and it doesn't matter if it's a smartphone or a, a dumb phone, um, it logs um, a cell tower ID every time you make a call, text, whatever, right? So, so what that means is that as you do things on your phone, and of course you have to do some inference here because you, you don't use your phone all the time, but as you do things on your phone, you have this like trace of cell towers that you were close to while you were making those calls. So we have a trajectory for that person over time, and the, the resolution of your estimates for where that person was will depend on the um, cell tower density. So in rural areas, it might be like five kilometers. You know, we're not really sure where you are. In cities, it can be like a city block. We're pretty sure where that person was, right? Um, and we'll talk about that later when we talk about privacy. Um, but in any case, so this is just sitting in the basement of operators everywhere. Sometimes they get rid of it after three months or six months or three days, um, but it's there and it's easy to collect. It's essentially free and it's updated in real time. It's also scalable, so we're talking millions and millions of people. So, so really what that means is that suddenly, okay, the resolution is not always great, but we have data on this part of the spatial mobility dynamics that we need for our models. Um, and so this is great, it's cheap, uh, it should be, I think it should be used, um, and it's already being used by the, the operators, it's just a question of how we use it for public health. Um, and it's not just this type of data, right? So here's a picture of Kenya. We're also getting increasingly high resolution satellite imagery. So we can over, overlay multiple layers of metadata now, where we have, so this shows the population density of Kenya. Um, and of course, mobile phone towers tend to follow population density. Um, we ha you can't really see this, but um, work by Andy Tatum at the University of Southampton and others, they, they use different types of satellite data to delineate where settlements actually are, and that's usually much more reliable than census um, information, especially in areas where census gets outdated really quickly. Um, we need to know something about the pathogen of interest for this type of work, right? So this is a map showing the prevalence of um, Plasmodium falciparum, human malaria parasite in children. Um, and you can see highly heterogeneous coverage, like a lot around here, Lake Victoria, uh, um, some on the coast, and then not so much in the middle. There's highlands there, so the temperature is not so permissive. Um, and then here, we've just overlaid all of those things, including the cell towers. So the cell towers are where the black dots are, right? Um, so you can see it follows population density. And then what we can do, right, We if we have cell phone data, then we can measure connectivity between towers longitudinally over time because there are important seasonal migration events. We can use that to delineate our settlements using some of the satellite information. And then we can make some modeling estimates about how frequently we think the parasite will be traveling between these places. Um, and so that's useful because it turns out that there are usually particular foci of transmission that are spreading the disease to other places. So this, these maps show um, if you just do the, the travel 
the, the travel analysis and you ask the question, where do people come from and where do they go to on average, right? So you're looking at anomalous movements to and from particular places. This shows travel and you can see this is Nairobi, the capital. A lot of people travel to Nairobi, so we refer to that as a travel sink. A lot of people are coming from these highland regions to the capital or to work around these lake regions. Once you overlay your uh, epi data, and estimate flows of the parasite, you see a different picture where most of the infections that are being imported across the country are coming from this region near Lake Victoria, and they're spreading into the highland regions where we do see epidemic outbreaks, um, and into Nairobi and Enveron. So um, this is important because you don't get local transmission here, but you see these cases popping up, and they're most likely imported. So the lesson here is that if you really do a good job of controlling transmission here, you're going to have knock-on effects, right? If you're endlessly distributing bed nets here, you're going to be mopping up imported infections and sparking transmission events all the time, right? So it's about making resource allocation more efficient and targeted for control. Um, so that's for malaria, which is more or less endemic in Kenya. In Pakistan, we looked at dengue to try and understand whether we could do a better job of forecasting. So this is moving beyond just trying to look at general flows and where things come from and go to, and actually see if we can do a good job of predicting how things are going to spread. So <coughs> in this study, um, we used mobile phone data and we looked at a, an outbreak that happened in 2013 in the northeast of the country in Lahore. And we asked the question, how much better do we do if we have this type of information embedded in our models compared to a standard modeling approach? Um, and the answer is we do a lot better, which is comforting to me. Um, and here you can see a kind of uh, one way that people think about dengue risk, which is just suitor, suitability for vectors. And it's sort of this hard to interpret, right? But if we use our modeling approach and you incorporate this kind of data, you see very clearly that there are high-risk regions right around Lahore, and we um, predict that those are, in fact, the places where you'd get um, outbreaks. And in fact, there are a range of things you can do along these lines. So it turns out that general mobility patterns, so just how much do people travel in this particular place, are highly predictive of how many children have been vaccinated in that household and whether the women have got um, antenatal, prenatal care. So Mobility is also a kind of general proxy for other things and can be useful um, more, more broadly. And then even large-scale seasonal fluctuations on, on the district level. So this is not like, this is not high-resolution mapping or anything. This is like large movements of people seasonally can do a good job of explaining dynamics of childhood infections like rubella, which was interesting to me because I, you know, children aren't, we're not necessarily able to model children movements. Right, so, uh, but it's a direct measure of kind of overall population connectivity and it does a pretty good job. Certainly a lot better than previous proxies which were essentially school closures and um, school terms and rainfall and things like this. Okay, so that's useful. And those are kind of uh, routine health kind of questions about disease control. So during outbreaks, of course, this becomes urgent and we're trying to understand how things are going to spread from a new outbreak event. So in 2014, Ebola hit, and there was this massive like pile on to try and get this data from UN agencies and researchers and everyone, and it was a mess. And uh, operators didn't want to 
share the data because there weren't protocols in place for privacy. The regulators were um, bulking for, for clear reasons. Um, the government was getting involved. It was a mess. We didn't get any, well, we did eventually get data that Corey's now working on, but much after it was useful at, for the actual outbreak. Um, but we, we produced some maps that were kind of um, modeled estimates based on mobile phone data that we did have for other countries in West Africa. So we put these out and said, if this is helpful, uh, you can use it. Um, I don't know how helpful it was. It would have been a lot more helpful if we could have just accessed the data and then we could have done a better job. But the only good thing, I guess, was that we learned, we helped the GSMA, which is like the mobile, the sort of international mobile phone regulating type organization. We helped them develop some protocols. Um, and, and mainly the protocols are about how you aggregate and anonymize the data in such a way that we're not worried about um, targeting particular individuals or particular ethnic groups or whatever. And that's something that's, that still hasn't really been um, standardized and that we're still working on and it's a, a constant issue. So I'll just mention one other thing, you know, there's a very obvious use for this data in natural disasters. Right? There's an earthquake or a flood or something, and you want to know where's everybody gone? How quickly are they returning back home? Where do we put supplies? Um, and so this, in collaboration with Flowminder Foundation, which does this um, routinely, um, you can do things like just look at you know fraction of people um, who move during some of these events. Where did they go? How long do they stay there before returning home? All of these kinds of things. Um, you can sometimes in the data, you can see things like money transfers, where's money being transferred around, and it can really be helpful for targeting aid. Um, so, so I guess my vision for how I think these data should be used for disease control is that you have your national control programs, right? So this is a risk map of malaria in Cambodia. Um, and it can look heterogeneous, it can look however it looks, right? And then you have your at-risk population. So normally what happens is that the national control program allocates, you can't see the arrows, but anyway, allocates resources to populations uh, using these risk maps to prioritize who gets what, right? And the data, that, and then these report back, they report back, you know, how many people we had with this, how many tablets did we use, all of this kind of thing, and then that goes into the next risk map. So I think there are lots of ways that mobile phone technologies can be used in this cycle to improve health. Um, so something that is not to do with CDR analytics that I didn't talk about, but of course, participatory surveillance. So that's like, you can imagine flu near you, but on your phone, right, where people are saying like, I have these symptoms that can be geolocated. We could have automated reporting by clinicians and that could do a lot to improve our initial risk estimates. You could, um, you know, what I've been talking about, you could imagine that operators in country routinely produce mobility maps that could be integrated into control programs so that they have a better idea of where to target resources. And then, you know, you can also imagine that phones could facilitate a personalized information back the other way. So operators, I mean, so national control programs could target educational messaging and particular response to places and people based on all of this data. So there are loads of places where mobile technology could be um, used as an input to improve and facilitate public health programs. At the moment, that absolutely does not happen. So I will finish by talking about some of the problems with using this kind of data. So 
um, privacy is all obviously protecting the privacy of, of individual subscribers is absolutely central to uh, to some of this, right? So um, at the moment, we try and develop best practices on like how to um, how to anonymize and aggregate the data, but there's no consensus. And it really depends on the country you're dealing with. So some countries you'll go in uh, and they'll be like, have some data. And you're just like, no, please don't show me the SIM card number, right? Like they, they, there's, no, there's no kind of regulatory framework. It's not standardized. Other countries, you can't get the data no matter how well you're gonna aggregate it. So for example, most of the, when we worked in Pakistan, all the data stay behind the firewall the operator's data scientist did the initial anonymization. The operator's research team did the aggregation to our specification subsequently, so it was already anonymized. Then we had, then we aggregated it to a level where it was only transition matrices on weekly between fairly large um, spatial scales. Um, but it's really hard. That, that aggregation has to happen in a research question specific way, obviously, and that's difficult. At the moment, there's a push to, to have, um, so governments understand that this is useful, right? So what happened during Ebola is the, in Liberia, they said, great, the government will have the data and they will just use it for good, which seems like a bad idea, right? So the operators need to maintain control of their data, um, but the regulators need to be on board with how that data is used. And then the lastly, I think there are misaligned incentives across the board for making this use routine. National control programs largely just don't want to lose their jobs. Um, you know, they want to help health as well, but they, it's, they are conservative. Academics get rewarded for publications, and that's it, not for seeing through these things and making sure that they get into populations. Operators have minimal incentives to share this and anonymize this data. It's a cost to them. Apart from some PR, it's not clear why it's good for them, um, except in the long-term investment in the populations that they work in. Um, and then the regulators and the governments uh, also have their own complex stuff. So, um, so there's no standardization. There are a lot of difficult negotiations that have to happen. Data quality can be variable. So what happens is you negotiate for ages, um, and then meanwhile the operator is like, great, you're gonna, you're gonna have a result next week because we just gave you the data, right? Which is also doesn't happen. So this is just a flow diagram of, for one of the projects, right? So you say to the operator, can we use your data? We're gonna do a project on X. They say, yes. You talk to the control program and you say, can we use your epidemiological data for this project? They say, well, yes, if the Ministry of Health has signed off. So then you go to the Ministry of Health and they say, yes, but has the op operator got regulator approval? Then you go to the regulator and you get regulator approval and the regulator says, yes, but has there been Ministry of Health approval? And you say, yes. And then the ministry says, but what about the Ministry of Telecommunications? Have you got a letter from them? So then you go to them and they say, well, if the Ministry of Finance is, I mean, Ministry of Finance stands above all ministries, obviously. Um, and they say, well, okay. And then you have to go back to the national control programs and they, you need obviously all of the normal ethical approvals for using EpiData. So you can imagine there's a lot of waiting for letters. There's a lot of trying to bring people to the table. So that's for one project, let alone saying, now we should make this routine, right? There's a huge amount of bureaucracy. So I see this as one of the biggest problems um, Privacy aside, and I think there are good ways to anonymize and aggregate this data that will protect subscriber privacy, but you've got to navigate this every time. You know, and the Ministry of Health usually says, well, we'll do a dengue project, but you weren't signed off to do cholera. 
So then you have to go to the cholera control program and it, it all starts again. Um, so this is, a very, this is a very problematic and I think it's probably the biggest hurdle to getting this stuff into routine use. Um, because the mobile phone data itself, it's not rocket science, right? It's, it's like elaborate counting with spatial dimensions. And putting it into the model takes some capacity building, but it would be straightforward to do. So I think this is some of the problem. Um, and the worry about privacy is legitimate, but I think uh, there are answers to it. So I will stop. I'm happy to discuss anything. Um, and these are some of the partners that we work with. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks, that was really helpful. Um, I, I guess on just building on your closing comments, what's a realistic solution? I mean, is it something that operates at the level of, you know, these large multilaterals like UN, WHO, mm -hmm. that set standards, and then how do you, how do you ensure compliance yeah. to those standards? And um, I think the point about sort of vertical permissioning based on health condition is on point. Yeah. You have some conditions that are more stigmatizing than others. So if you wanted to approach some sort of blanket permission around a health issue, emerging health threat, et cetera, how do you avoid um, kind of weaponizing, yeah. you know, a policy framework that disadvantages some individuals or yeah. plays into the hands of others? So you know, I, I think the sociology is always harder than the technology yeah. for things like this. So that's yeah, I totally, on. I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, while we can anonymize individuals, if you clearly have a region that is largely refugee populations, the stigmatization issue is very important. Um, and, you know, so for example, in Swaziland for malaria, they're very close to elimination. And you have to prove for elimination status with the WHO, you have to prove no local transmission for three years, but imported cases are okay. So already, so what happens generally is that plantation workers from Mozambique come in seasonally and they work in Swaziland and they're already, you know, um, stigmatized to some extent. So adding to that problem is not, uh, is not ideal, right? You want accurate estimates without the, the possibility of particular groups being stigmatized. There is an unfortunate correlation between high-risk groups, vulnerability and stigmatization. Right, and, and those are the ones that need the most access to healthcare and all these things. Um, it's a really hard problem. So Gates, some people like Gates have um, started to talk about whether it would be best to have a mobile hub, right? So you have all the operators say, okay, we're not gonna decide individual projects. We're gonna put our data somewhere else. And then they decide how to, I personally um, am not sure that's, um, a very useful solution because it creates a different kind of bureaucracy. It means that the data is not, you're not nimble, especially for emergent epidemics, right? Because you need this thing to be seamlessly. And it also reduces control. It reduces kind of autonomy of individual subscribers to do things through their CSR, you know. Um, um, and, I, and I also think that there is an issue with data leaving countries. You know, it's best if everything stays kind of in country. It's individual governments. One of the biggest problems we have is that you, you just get permission from one person and then they lose, lose their job and then it's another person and you've got to establish trust again and all of that mm -hmm. stuff. I, 
I, that's a governance issue that I don't know how you usefully solve. I do think that the GSMA and there is a, you know, like if you look at genome data, right? We have like standard ethics principles and guidelines for how we think about genomics data and how it should be used and all that kind of thing. I, I think it's very uh, important that we try and establish standardized protocols for this type of information, maybe through the GSMA um, that is agreed upon by maybe not the WHO, but some some overarching body so that when when researchers or whoever goes in, there's some guidelines somewhere and they can say in their paper, like we followed this protocol. That's really important. So. Um, so I would say, yes, we need to have these overarching principles and protocols that are based on like evidence-based science. How that's implemented within individual countries is always gonna be open for, like there is a, a country that I was in last year um, that's sort of politically a little bit unstable. And there was a guy in the operator and his only job was to feed this data to government upon their request. That opens them up for all kinds of ethical issues, right? Um, and that's certainly not what I'm advocating for in the control programs. I don't see how you get around like corrupt governance issues in country, but I think from an IRB or academic research perspective, yes, we can absolutely make guidelines. It's hard though. I have one additional question. Um, so if I, if I understand what you've done here, you're really modeling population flows by these captures yeah. in the cell towers. So have you tried to or at least measured or quantified what's the value added of putting individual search query data into that? In other words, like, you know, are people searching about the symptoms of malaria, et cetera, which you can also kind of model as, yeah. you know. So those are two different inputs, the movement of populations yeah. relative to these reference points, and the other, what are people asking about them, you know, yeah. reflects that individual. So we haven't. So, the, so um, but right, so when I was talking about participatory surveillance, right, you could, you could easily imagine, at least spatially, I don't think, right now, our protocols are specifically not for linking individual personal data to the CDR records. But even like query, like Google Yeah, but you could actually, on a spatial level, say like, where are people, right. yes. And that is something that I think we will see more and more of. Um, linking up those, it'll be like another meta layer of data, yeah. right? Yes, I think that's, the other thing is, I think, you could imagine a big study and potentially where you have um, um, you have a like, you know, whatever you look up your symptoms on an app, whatever, and it says, do you give us permission to use your CDR? Then through the operator, you could then, if you got explicit permission and consent to use people's trajectories, then you could do it, you could do a great job, right? Because then you could actually look at individual movement patterns and health outcomes. Um, I, I'm sure they, in China with Baidu, I'm pretty sure they can do that already because there's less regulation stuff, but uh, I'm sure you could do it. Sure. One is, um, are the cheap feature phones, even if you're not using them, but they're on, are they, is your location being marked at the cell tower? No, is only that, if you use them. The other is, um, we understand at a high level what's going on here, but the relative impact of this versus all the other inter interventions, why is this such, you said at one point, this this is how we would eradicate malaria. Yeah. It's an amazing thing to say. Why is it that it's that high of an impact? Um, essentially, because of the difference 
compared to before, right? So there was no data about this. So, you know, people are like, well, you don't know who has a phone. True, there was nothing before, right? So apart from anything else, uh, the, the sort of scope and resolution of data is unlike anything we've had before on the, on the spatial scales that we actually need to start like nailing down and properly doing some of these elimination programs. So to bring it back to an example of, say, Kenya, which you were talking about before, everybody knows where the malaria is and you know you want to fight it there. But what might be counterintuitive for non-doctors is if 10,000 people last month went to this other region to go work at a farm mm. or whatever it is, yeah. and those people are going to be reservoirs of the, the parasite. Yeah. You didn't know that before. Right. You didn't know it at all. But those people are now reinfecting everybody else mm -hmm. in that new location. Right. So, um, so there's malaria all over Kenya, right? Not in Nairobi because it's high, but basically all over the place. So I guess it goes against dogma, right? The dogma would be, Okay, we're going to eliminate in Kenya by stamping out the low-hanging fruit, which is these low transmission zones, low transmission zones. So these like around the country, right? So you're like, this must be an easy place because there's only a few cases, which is exactly the opposite of what we're saying. We're saying that's not right because those are largely imported, and there's no way to kind of know that before. So, for example, in the Kenyan Highland region, there's been this debate, very, very vitriolic debate about whether the resurgence of epidemics in the highlands has, has because of climate change or because of increased population densities and migration. But nobody had ever been able to measure the impact of migration before, only temperature and rainfall, right, whatever. So, so we could, you can actually measure it and now you can say like, yes, we would predict there should be tons of malaria coming into that region and causing epidemics. You know, if you cut out, if you manage to, if that region in the lake, if you manage to get just like absolutely blitz it with interventions, we predict epidemics in the highlands would go away. So it's, it's, um, it's a sort of ecological dynamical framework to think about control rather than just like, where is the malaria? We put things there. Um, and in resource-poor settings, that's a big deal because it saves. Like in, there was a project in Namibia where um, Andy Tatum, a collaborator, was working with their control program, and they were able to reduce in one year. They were able to reduce the number of bed nets deployed and the regions deployed by like 80 percent because they could target the actual places where all the malaria came from. Based on based on this type of approach. Just to follow up on that, they reduced them in 80 percent. Reducing bed netting, like I always hear, like you know, bed netting is the single most low-cost intervention. The idea of like, well, let's get rid of 80% of them. So there was a follow-on that said, even though we did that, we saw the that's Yeah, a, so they've, they're working long-term in Namibia. Right? Yeah, that's and amazing. So, yeah, it's amazing, and 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 I think so. Bed nets are for transmission reduction, right? Yeah. They assume that there are mosquitoes there, um, and so so. For malaria in particular, it matters because how you deal with imported cases is totally different than how you deal with local transmission. Um, why, why is that? Oh, because because transmission reduction is about mosquito <coughs> control and bed nets and spraying. Treatment of imported cases is about like access to artemisinin and, and things like that. But you don't need to attack the mosquitoes because it's not. Um, so yeah, so it's it's very it sort of changes the the sort of 
the scope and the um, efficiency and, of, and sort of targetability of some of these health goals. Um, and then for, I mean, for emerging epidemics, I think it's a no-brainer, right? Like, there's a new flu strain in Bangkok, right? You could imagine it could happen easily, right? You need to know where everyone's going, you know? Especially, like, with Ebola, it's ten day, 10 day period where you might be wandering around without symptoms, right? You really need to know where everyone's going to, to even think about planning your containment strategy. So. Is it actually literally true what you said about funding in the US right now requires? What was that? Be I, I think, a little facetious. I think that um, for sure, one of, the one of the few areas that is sort of safe is probably going to be biosecurity pandemic, you know, things that directly threaten the US. Um, and I think global health more broadly is, is likely to suffer from cuts. I mean, they're already, Fogarty is on the chopping board, and, which is very short-sighted, obviously, because, you know, where do they think these things come from? But that's a separate discussion, maybe. Other questions? Are these tools actually being used anywhere? You said some countries are better than others. Is there one place where they're doing it right and they're doing so I would say Namibia, as that example, this is now their sixth year of Andy helping them with their risk maps and deployment of de actual deployment of control programs and monitoring. Um, that's about it. Um, so in, in Pakistan, we thought we had a good thing going and we, we thought the model was good and uh, everything and then politics took over and uh, became slow. I hope, I, I mean, I hope that this will become routine. It's just incredibly complicated and political. Well, on, on the politics, you, you said something else I think was, re was really astute, that um, the incentive structure operating on academics, a lot of these things end up being our demonstration projects and our right. you know, NIH grants that we get our paper out and yeah. it's done. Um, how, in your view, do we navigate the relationships with host countries and host country investigators or government offices in that yeah. setting because you know, there has to be um, a sustainable handoff for this to mm. live its own life and you know maybe there aren't the structures to absorb them given that and we're not in a hospitable <coughs> moment with our own yeah. NIH and you know AID and all that kind of stuff to, to say that's really key. Yeah. So if you're a PI of one of these projects you know or somebody here in this room who they want to be like yeah. so. What are the implications? So, so then for running your yeah study. Right? So the idea would be that I never have to do it again, right? Because people yeah. there should be able to do it, and they can. It's not a lack of um, sort of ability. What I find is that so the data scientists and the operator are incredibly technically gifted people. Um, the junior people in the national control programs are less technical. And I personally think that, um, so someone like the Wellcome Trust, right, they invest in long-term relationships in, in particular places where they do capacity building and they build up these long-term uh, relationships with control programs, governments, and train people. And I think that the, you know, if we can do a good job of, you know, if I had money, 
I would throw it at junior scientists in low and middle income settings to work in control programs, right? Applied epidemiologists. So we're, doing, we're running a workshop next month, actually. We're bringing, this was a visa nightmare. We're bringing 15 junior people from control programs from 12 different countries here to learn mapping, modeling, talk about this stuff, because you, and networking and stuff. Because you need, I think if you have a strong team of, of technically uh, able people on the ground, you, you need the one guy in the operator, you need the one guy, and I mean guy or gal, you need the one guy in the control program. And as long as the, the higher ups have signed off, they can do it. You, but, but that capacity is not there, and in many places, the kind of signing off is not there. Once it becomes routine, I think the sign off will not be an issue. It'll just be, you've got to keep the operator incentivized to actually do the anonymization and send the data over. And then you've got to have the counterpart in the control program. But that, that kind of echelon, the, the actual data scientists, those are the ones that make it happen. It's not. So I, I think we have to invest there, and I know, I don't know. Maybe the Wellcome Trust will invest there. I hope so. Because the researchers aren't incentivized correctly. Oh, no, they're just slowly publishing girls, so. Yeah. And, you know, that's the model. That's, that's you know, no, it's hard no, to get around I mean, that, you, too. You, yeah, that's the context in which a lot of us work. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, do your best. Yeah, so I think capacity building has to be like a major. A major sort of programmatic investment area for for people like the Wellcome Trust and other, and in country too. Any more questions? No, they're coming um, mid-May. I, did, I, I have now learned all about like requirements for a visa from Papua New Guinea and requirements for a visa from... So it's great. I think it'll be wonderful. I just hope that they're not all stopped at the border and I'm going to have to rush and try and rescue them somehow. I think right. it should be okay. Yeah. What countries are they coming from? Um, Bangladesh, Myanmar, Cambodia, India, Papua New Guinea, Rwanda, Madagascar, um, where else? Not Brazil? Uh, we have one Brazilian okay. coming, yes. So, look, yeah, 12 countries, I can't remember all of them. And how about uh, Ebola? Was this an outbreak? Um, how, how this was applied or not applied? Or... So, um, I could let Corey talk about this. So, um, it wasn't applied because nobody, could, the data was not, uh, it, was a, it was a sort of comedy of, political errors and and this academic thing really got in the way because you know everyone wanted ownership everyone wanted to brand their name on it before there was even any data you know and there was a one point during the outbreak where I think Andy um, Andy basically ha was sitting in front of the data and he was like we can do this right now and send it to MSF or the Ministry of Health. we can send them a map right now and it was like no we can't right because the UN needs to blah, blah, and this person, blah, 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 and it's just, yeah, and it just got, um, and it was really frustrating because it wasn't like, it wasn't like, it wasn't like Andy was in it for glory, right? It was just, it's right here. Like, this would be useful. Why can't we just do this? Um, but I think this, this kind of need for, there are, there are, 
people that need to be seen to be like, look, we're the tech in health agency or whatever. So we've got to we've got to have this as our brand, right? And it's like, who cares, right? Like, who cares? Like, just why don't we just get the data out? Um, you can write about that. So That's Corey's writing a paper because we did anyway. eventually get the data after the fact, um, and it's it, all. All we did was we just said, "Do can you measure in real time the impact of travel restrictions during an outbreak?" And the answer is yes, um, and it correlated with Ebola um, prevalence, which not surprisingly, and it, uh, what was it like? Long distance travel was reduced by like seventy five percent. Yeah. So, so as a kind of just a policy tool, like is your intervention working? You can do this in a, almost trivially, yeah. uh, and that's. I think it was that paper after 9/11 too, right? The cessation in air travel and I heard the gross discontinuity in flu, maybe. Mm. Or, right. What was interesting is people went right back to normal straight away after the lockdown. Um, but it's, I mean, the point of this paper is just like. This is straightforward. You can do this in a way that protects privacy. It sh you should do. You should do this. You know, um, it's unclear. Hopefully, it will be useful for the next time. Like, lives saved had this data, but you know, like that projection. That's harder because the epidemiological data is was so bad, and that was one of the big problems for that outbreak. Was the epi data was just it was the management of the data and the, the, all of that was hard. So useful for next time. When you were discussing the privacy issues, um, I was very glad to hear about sort of the pre-aggregation and the obfuscation. Yeah. We have a whole team here working on like doing that for data sets. Yeah. What, what I was wondering is specifically with respect to this type of research, does the, let, let's assume everything is perfect for you. Like you, you're allowed to get what you want, you're allowed to do what you want, it's yeah. all good. Does that data have a like a time frame in which it is useful? Because you mentioned right at the beginning, like, great, would have been nice to get this two years ago. Yeah. With respect to, okay, you gathered it. Yeah. You're doing all the appropriate things, but you know what? You could delete it now. Yeah. Because it's not germane anymore. Or will it always continue to play a role? Um. So. I think it's useful for lots of things that you can't necessarily anticipate. One of the things that's clearly very important in many countries, especially in low-income settings, is seasonality and migration. And you need cross, you need multi-annual data sets to even look at how that's changing. Um, but also, you know, like we have data from Kenya from 2009, and it's it was, you would have thought that it was basically obsolete now, right? But other people have parasite data from 2009 and then you can match it up and it's still useful um, so well and operators do get rid of it after a certain time right they they chuck it out after some variable three months six months nine months um, I think one solution one way that you could do this in a way that might make people happy right is get rid of the raw data yeah get rid of the raw data but do enough aggregations that you're pretty sure you can answer Right. Um, that's what I was curious about. There was, in terms of pleasing certain regulators, if you could say, look, we're going to delete it later. It's yeah, fine. we're just going to keep the transition yeah. matrices. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's a good way to to kind of to do that for sure. But also, the raw data is just a pain because it's enormous and it's not very easily 
That's not very tractable. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carol. Find a way to collaborate with the person.